Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. I think all Americans should want and most do want to see the Constitution really embody the human rights basic principles that we all believe in, and the first one is equality. And that wasn't the case when the Constitution was written. We all know that women were intentionally excluded, that African Americans were intentionally excluded, and those rights have come up over time, but they really need to be enshrined in the bedrock of our legal framework. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. When the framers of the U.S. Constitution wrote that all men are created equal, were they excluding women? Consider these words from Justice Antonin Scalia in an interview from 2011. Certainly the Constitution does not require discrimination on the basis of sex. The only issue is whether it prohibits it. It doesn't. This omission was no accident. As John Adams was helping draft and pass the Constitution, his wife Abigail wrote him, Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Same old story. Husband ignores wife's advice. Global society worse off for it centuries later. In other words, by not being explicitly included in the Constitution, women do not have equal rights. After winning the right to vote in 1920, women leaders proposed an amendment to the Constitution that would prohibit discrimination against girls and women on the basis of sex. Introduced in 1923, it took until 1972 for Congress to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. But constitutional amendments require ratification by three-fourths of the states. It fell three states short at the 10-year deadline. The momentum fizzled. In fact, legislation has been reintroduced in every session of Congress since 1982, yet it has never been brought up for a vote, even though polls show more than 94% public support for equal rights for women. The biggest obstacle seems to be public awareness. Over 80% of people polled believe these equal rights have already been won. But the election of Donald Trump in 2016 catalyzed a watershed moment in the women's movement. In 2017, the Me Too and Time's Up mass movements lifted the ERA back to center stage. Might the Equal Rights Amendment finally become part of the Constitution? And why does it matter? This is the Equal Rights Amendment, Time's Up, with Joan Blades, Kimberly Crenshaw, and Jessica Newworth. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. It's actually a very simple sentence that constitutes the ERA. It's equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. 
Very hard to disagree with that. It's simple, straightforward, and I think pretty non-controversial. It was a very bipartisan campaign. I don't hear any opposition now. What I hear is, what is the ERA? <laughs> People really don't know what it is, or they think we already have it. And when I say they think we already have it, I include federal judges who think we already have it. It's a really, really common misconception. Jessica Newworth is an award-winning women's rights lawyer and activist. She's president and director of the ERA Coalition and the Fund for Women's Equality. She wrote the book Equal Means Equal, Why the Time for an Equal Rights Amendment is Now. While Newworth was researching the book, she was stunned to discover how many people in the U.S. are unaware of the sharp gender inequality that still persists in the country. For instance, few people realize that in 2017, the U.S. ranked 100th in the world for the representation of women in powerful political positions. Jessica Newworth spoke with us at a Bioneers conference. We do seem to think that we're in much better shape from the point of view of gender equality than a lot of other countries, and yet so many other countries have had women heads of state long time ago, many women. So many countries have 50% women in parliament, and I think we're just at about 20%, and that's the highest we've ever been. And we support countries that put quotas in for 33%, and we can't even do 20%. So many countries have equality provisions in their constitution. It's very, very common. And in fact, the United States and its foreign policy has really strong-armed countries into putting this exact same provision in their constitutions in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan when we don't even have it in our own. So it's very hypocritical. While Rwanda mandates 30% of parliamentary seats be held for women and more than half of its national elected officials are female, in the U.S., even some of the most basic measures of equality in the workplace haven't been resolved. Pay equity is one that's gotten a lot of attention recently. You might know that 79 cents is now what well, women as a whole make for every dollar that a man makes. The numbers are much worse. For black women, it's 64 cents. And for Latino women, it's 54 cents. So we're talking about almost kind of half pay. And as you might know, every time that day comes up of the year where women have to work extra to make the same amount that a man, it's just like halfway through the next year. I discovered a little over a decade ago that, in fact, though women are making substantially less than men, there's a very distinct point at which that gets much more extreme, and that happens to be motherhood. Joan Blades is the co-founder of MoveOn.org and of MomsRising.org, a grassroots multicultural nonprofit working to increase family economic security and end discrimination against women and mothers. Moms Rising has more than a million members and collaborates with over 100 aligned organizations. Blade says that 81% of women who become mothers do so by the time they're in their 40s, which means that most women face bias and discrimination in the workplace as a result of structural problems that persist. There's a huge bias against mothers in hiring wages and advancement. There's this, this presumption that you're going to be less committed, and so they look for it in the workplace. Mothers are offered less for the same position. Fathers are offered more for the same position. You know, if you're a woman without any kids, you're probably going to be making about 90 cents to the man's dollar, whereas all of a sudden if you're a mother or you're a mother of color, that 
amount you make goes down so dramatically. It's a huge difference. There's no paid leave for mothers in this country except for California, and we've helped pass it in two other states, which is awesome, but it's 47 states to go. The U.S. and Papua New Guinea are the only countries in the world that have no paid leave for new mothers. We literally have women going back to work days after giving birth in this country because what kind of choice is it? Care for my child or feed my family one or the other? It doesn't work. And it's not an accident that we have under 5% women CEOs in the Fortune 500. It's because of all these different biases. So when you put a focus on it and you allow people to think about the structures necessary for work, that means you need to have paid leave for new mothers. You need to have paid sick days. You have to have quality child care, affordable quality child care, and fair pay, health care, all the things a family needs, and after-school programs. We've been in denial that, in fact, most kids don't have a caretaking parent at home anymore. That's the reality of the modern family. And that means it's putting parents in a really tough spot. According to Joan Blade's research, the reason that 25% of families fall into poverty is that having a child leads to strained finances. From a lack of child care, health care, and other basic support services, she says that issues often viewed as women's issues are actually family, community, and national economic issues. Addressing these structural barriers may well be a trim tab to solve numerous challenges society faces. Blades highlighted the kinds of benefits to employers that could result in her book, The Custom Fit Workplace, Choose When, Where, and How to Work and Boost Your Bottom Line. Offering workplace policies such as flexible work arrangements actually serves employers as well as female employees and their families. You look at retail and the low-wage health care positions, huge numbers of workers, and they are often treated as though they're disposable. Effective scheduling, that is, honoring the fact that people have responsibilities, so giving them prior knowledge, at least a week in advance, of when they're going to be scheduled. Way too many of these places have like 24 hours notice, if that. But if you're a parent, you can't give 24 hours notice and expect them to have childcare on hand. No matter the job, you have to give people respect. But ultimately, these kinds of benefits are a national structural issue. Several European countries have demonstrated the many virtues of enshrining gender equality rights in their constitutions. Such federal rights can fundamentally address discrimination in the workplace. They can create more balance and political representation between the sexes. And federal policies can make it much more viable for fathers to participate more in childcare. More and more large businesses are also instituting family leave for fathers in order to retain their young men. And evidence indicates that the great majority of men want these policies, says Jessica Newworth. Men generally play a different role than they used to in, in households and families. And so they stand to benefit as much as women from a lot of the changes that the ERA would promote. 
the way in which men, both legally and culturally, are treated in terms of paternity leave, there's such a negative. I've talked to quite a few men who just feel so much pressure not to take paternity leave, which they would love to do and which they should have every right to do. So it's one thing that they need to get the right, which they don't always have, and then the second thing, to be able to exercise it in a fair way, in a free way, that they don't have to pay some social price or some career advancement price for exercising that right. When we return, Jessica Neuwirth and attorney Kimberly Crenshaw explore the challenges in creating a unified women's rights movement. And they shine a light on the gnarly intersections where gender and race come together in complex and often invisible ways. This is the Equal Rights Amendment. Time's up. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. To see, hear, and read more from Bioneers, or to subscribe to our podcast, visit Bioneers.org. When it comes to tools that effectively address gender inequality, Jessica Neuwirth believes that while law is only part of the solution, it plays an essential and necessary role. Law remedies and institutionalizes principles of human rights that are fundamental to guide the development of public policy. Newworth began her career as a human rights lawyer dedicated to ensuring that the international human rights movement paid closer attention to the most severe forms of violence and discrimination against women. One of the primary reasons she's working to get the ERA passed is to address the lack of constitutional protection women have when they're victims of violence. The ERA could provide federal redress for women seeking justice. Well, there are lots of really sad stories, but one that I think is especially timely for us is a story of campus sexual assault from 1994. A young woman named Christy Broncala, and her story reads like any story that you could have read yesterday. As a freshman, she was raped, gang raped, by uh, several varsity football players, and she wasn't able to get justice. She went to the school, she went to the state, she couldn't get justice. Right around that time, Joe Biden in the Senate had passed the Violence Against Women Act, and it included a provision that allowed her access to federal courts to get a remedy for gender-based violence. So she used that new provision of the law and brought her case against the rapist and against the university to court, in federal court, and her case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and it was thrown out. And it wasn't thrown out because it wasn't gender-based violence. The judges said, of course, this fits within the scope of the act. The problem, they said, is the act has no basis in the Constitution. There's no jurisdictional basis for that provision of the Violence Against Women Act, and they struck down that part of the act, which then denied 
all other women subject to that form of gender-based violence access to the federal court system for remedies. So I always wonder, that was 1994, if Christy Broncala had been able to prosecute her case and she had won her case and the university, for example, had been held responsible in 1994, who knows if that might have started a pattern of cases and a pattern of responsibility that would have really helped us avoid what we now have as a total epidemic. So that's one example. There are many cases, though. The courts have been closed to a lot of women who have suffered severe forms of discrimination and violence, and that is something that the ERA would definitely change. Newworth says there's mounting discussion of expanding the scope of protections in a proposed equal rights amendment to include race. Laws against discrimination separate race and gender a conundrum that results in women of color regularly slipping between legal cracks and their cases being thrown out. Kimberly Crenshaw is professor of law at UCLA and Columbia Law School. Over and over again, she's witnessed the failure of the law to address the complex crossroads of multiple experiences that are otherwise invisible to the many people not living that story up close and personal. She calls this recognition of the interconnection of compound biases intersectionality. Kimberly Crenshaw says that, along with experiencing gender discrimination, African-American women also experience racial discrimination and violence that are particular to being a black woman, often at the hands of the state. Kimberly Crenshaw spoke with us at a Bioneers conference. In Oklahoma City last year, there was a police officer who was accused of sexually abusing 13 black women while he was on duty. Ultimately, he was charged, convicted, and sentenced to 263 years for his abuse of eight black women. Not many people know much about that case. And one of the reasons is because of intersectional failure. So The police abuse, the sexual abuse of women with whom this officer came into contact, that's clearly an issue about sexual violence. It's clearly an issue of violence against women. One would think that the major organizations that advocate on behalf of survivors of sexual abuse would have been front and center on that case. But it's about police. It's not about sexual abuse on college campuses. Right where most of the conversation is. So these women just didn't fit the frame of the kind of women who we think about when we think about you know, contemporary issues of sexual abuse. Kimberly Crenshaw says that advocating for women of color signals a primary new characteristic of today's third-wave feminist movement, an inclusion revolution that organizes with an intersectional lens, includes race and class, and honors the cultural, ethnic, and other diverse experiences of all women. When I first started to broaden intersectionality beyond employment cases, it was in the early 90s when the conversation about, you know, does feminism include us? Is feminism basically just a white thing? These were some of the debates that were happening at the time. And I actually had um, a kind of complicated reaction to that. Because on one hand, yeah, you know, feminism, particularly mainstream feminism, is going to reflect the subjectivities, the, the life experiences of those who are seen as being the proponents, the the agents of it. And that's pretty much the way things are going to be. 
I think that what we need to demand is space to articulate a feminism that reflects our experiences rather than an expectation that they are in the position to articulate it for us. And it's important for the Black women to be able to say feminism from our perspective is not just attacking the fact that white women can't be the CEO. It's also, for our perspective, the fact that we can't even be part of the plant. So it was important for me to be able to articulate what difference our difference made, right? And make sure that the difference has a structural and political meaning. That's what makes it about inequality. It's about what difference my identity makes in access to things that we should all have access to. So for me, intersectionality, black feminism, and many of the other feminisms and intersectionalities that have come on board since is most powerful, not when it's just a, hey, what about me claim, but hey, I'm going to tell you what difference my difference should make in the analysis that's on the table, how to include my particular issue articulated from my vantage point, my set of experiences. Another challenge, Crenshaw says, is how to frame the question of women's rights in a way that's intersectional. Even the basic historical narrative about the women's movement often overlooks the racial dimensions. It's been a bumpy road, she says fraught with contradictions. Sometimes I ask my students, when did African Americans get the right to vote? And they'll say, you know, after the Civil War. And then I say, when did women get the right to vote? And they'll say, you know, 1920s. And then I say, so when did black women get the right to vote? And it's a trick question, right? Because they clearly didn't get the right to vote when African Americans did, because that was African American men. When women got the right to vote, that wasn't black women either because effectively the vote had been taken away from all black people generally. Mm -hmm. And so in reality, black women don't show up in the Negro hour is what it was called. And they don't show up in the women's hour either. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what's even more troubling, and this is a pattern that we've seen throughout history, When women's rights activism or when feminism doesn't also have a critique of racism and when anti-racism doesn't have a critique of patriarchy, these two movements end up actually being in opposition. So it's not often mentioned that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who were once part of the anti-racist movement against slavery, after having been sorely abandoned by that movement and disappointed, actually moved to racist arguments for suffrage. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not gonna stand by while Sambo walks into the heavenly gates of citizenship and let him govern me. I mean, these are the kind of arguments that get generated when you don't have an intersectional analysis and when you're basically basing your argument of discrimination on existing hierarchy. So the question now is, what is in place? Mm -hmm. What is the consciousness? What are the coalitions that are being brought to bear to make sure that this division doesn't happen again? If you think about it historically in terms of suffrage, 
it's such a divide and conquer. It's like there's no reason really that everybody shouldn't have gotten the vote at the same time. It's the same principle of everybody should vote. Again, Jessica Newworth. But it got divided into women and black men. And we do find some of the same issues, not only in the suffrage movement, but in the 1970s campaign for the ERA, where like one of the big issues was Phyllis Schlafly picked this up about, you know, a woman's place is in the home. And the thing is, like, there were always women who never could afford to be in the home. And it was, you see the class and and race issues in a lot of the way in which the argumentation happened and the movement building. So we have launched our ERA coalition, and we're trying to really make it as broad-based as possible. The movement for gender equality is gaining momentum and political traction. Record numbers of women in the U.S. are running for office. From the successive record-setting women's marches to the Me Too and Time's Up movements, an intersectional vision is converging that also embraces previously disparate movements of marginalized communities, such as immigrant rights and LGBTQ rights. Like the seemingly sudden breakthrough of the legalization of gay marriage, the political and cultural blockages in American society over the past 30 years that stopped ratification of the ERA may well have reached a turning point. Real change is already occurring. Most national constitutions around the world now guarantee gender equality, as do 23 U.S. states. Trends like these are helping shape a vision for enshrining such rights in a 21st century equal rights amendment in the U.S. Constitution. I think all Americans should want and most do want to see the Constitution really embody the human rights basic principles that we all believe in, and the first one is equality. And that wasn't the case when the Constitution was written. We all know that women were intentionally excluded, that African Americans were intentionally excluded. And those rights have come up over time, but they really need to be enshrined in the bedrock of our legal framework. That's the idea. Change may be closer than it has appeared. Women may at last claim equal rights in the Constitution. After all, say visionary innovators such as Jessica Neuwirth, Joan Blades, and Kimberly Crenshaw, it's not only all men who are created equal. This third wave of the women's movement says, time's up. You can see and hear more from the guests in our program and explore more Bioneers radio programs, podcasts, blogs, and videos online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel and Teo Grossman. Senior producer in station relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and consulting producer, Neil Harvey. Producer, Teo Grossman. Program engineer and music supervisor, Emily Harris. Our theme music is co-written by the Baca Forest people of Cameroon and Baca Beyond from the album East to West. All royalties from Baca compositions and performances go to the Baca Forest people, through the charity Global Music Exchange. Find out more at globalmusicexchange.org. 
Additional music was made available by Edamame at edamamebeats.com and by Music From Memory at musicfrommemory.com. The opinions expressed on the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. This is program number 0917.